Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. The Comb is a brand new podcast that brings you surprising, fascinating and intelligent stories from across the continent of Africa. It's made by the BBC World Service and would love you to come and check us out. Search for The Comb wherever you got this podcast. Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal. Welcome to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. It comes to you live from London. We begin today in Melbourne, Australia's second biggest city, which might become a case study of our times. A city which had been part of a national effort to control the coronavirus, but will in the next hour return to a stage three lockdown, people only being allowed for essential reasons because of a surge in cases. We've seen this in small pockets in Beijing, in China, in Leicester, in the English Midlands, in Israel and in northwest Spain in Galicia. And we'll hear from the Spanish health minister shortly. And perhaps this, more than anything, is an indication of the way we have to learn to live with this virus. A quick reminder, as cities and countries all over the world open up, the global figures of deaths due to the virus, 538,796, and confirmed infections, 11,647,399. Melbourne is experiencing an unwelcome first. The first time a city of 5 million people has been forced to return to the strict lockdown of the early days of the pandemic. The city has seen 191 new cases in the state of Victoria, the majority in a number of tower blocks of public housing, which have been under strict lockdown for three days already. A short time ago, I spoke to the journalist Bridget Rollison from ABC Melbourne. All of Greater Melbourne is returning to stage three restrictions. So there's only four reasons why Victorians should leave their homes, and that's to go shopping for food and essential items, if they've got medical appointments or caregiving, to go to work or study if they can't do it for home. And also, if they can go and exercise, they're allowed to do that, but they're just not allowed to leave their restricted postcodes. So before this uh, comprehensive stage three lockdown, it began with a few buildings in lockdown. Is it possible to carry Characterize a pattern of the profile of people who are becoming infected now? Well, that's an interesting point because we did have 191 cases in Victoria today, um, and that's the most we've ever recorded here since the pandemic began. But only 69 of those are actually in those public housing towers. And so they were in this hard lockdown. None of them in those buildings, more than 3,000 people, were actually allowed to leave their homes at all. Um, It's taken a few days for them to get food, and they said that they feel like prisoners in their own homes. Just outline the demographics of the people who live in these towers. Well, there's a lot lot of different um, people from a a lot of different areas, a lot of Sudanese people, a lot of people from the subcontinent as well, India and Asia. Most of those people um, have migrated to Australia and then they've been put in these public housing towers. There are a lot of families crammed into one-bedroom apartments and a lot of those people hadn't been able to get things um, as simple as nappies um, for a couple of days. So those really dense um, living conditions of what 
spiked the government to um, impose these restrictions. They've actually been described as those public housing towers as vertical cruise ships. And given the location of the virus in, in the main, how have people in Melbourne been reacting to the prospect of such a severe lockdown again? Um, there's a lot of worry about how this will impact people's mental health. There is a lot of big concern, though, for businesses in um, these Melbourne areas. Things like gyms, beauty salons, cinemas have to close again. Restaurants, cafes, things like that, they're only going to be takeaway only. So there's going to be a lot of economic damage for businesses around Melbourne. What's the significance then of the border being closed with uh, neighbouring New South Wales? Yeah, so from midnight tonight, for the first time in 100 years, the Victorian border is going to be closed with New South Wales. So there's a lot of border communities that live um, on on that border. So places like Aubrey-Wodonga, which has 100,000 people, there's constantly people crossing that river, which is the border, back and forth to take their kids to school, to work. Some live across the border. That will have a huge effect on those border communities from tonight, as well as things like freight trying to travel across the border. But places like New South Wales, who haven't had as many cases as we have here in Victoria, are really trying to stop the spread of this moving to other parts of Australia. I wonder if it's possible to talk about the mood in the context of where the the infections appear to be most uh, prevalent, given the context of Australia's relationship with uh, communities of migrants coming from different parts of the world? Yeah, so most of these are in the north and west and the migrant communities have actually uh, complained, I guess, that they haven't had the right information, they haven't had that information of what's going to happen um, with with the coronavirus restrictions, things like that, translated into their languages. So they say that they've been left in the dark a bit when it comes to um, things like testing. But there is going to be big testing sites that are set up in these um, re- in these migrant communities um, in the north and the west of Victoria. So they're really encouraging everyone in those communities to get tested to make sure that they can find all the virus in those areas. Bridget Rollison from ABC Melbourne. While speaking at a news conference in Melbourne, the State Premier of Victoria, Daniel Andrews, said the number of infections had left the authorities with no choice. These are unsustainably high numbers of new cases. Uh, It is simply impossible with case rates at this level uh, to have enough contact tracing staff, to have enough uh, physical resources, no matter where they come from, no matter what uniform they wear, in order to continue to suppress and contain this virus without taking significant steps. If we were to fail to take those steps, then it won't be a couple of hundred cases per day. It will be many more than that, and it will quickly spiral well and truly out of control. Mr Andrews said testing residents in nine housing estate tower blocks in Melbourne who have been in hard lockdown since Sunday was a priority. There are literally hundreds of staff both clinical and support staff currently going door to door in those tower blocks, testing, uh, and the response from residents has been very positive, very strong, uh, and we will get those, those samples off to the laboratory. We have dedicated capacity to get those tests done as quickly as possible, and I don't think other Victorians will mind uh, priority being given to those samples, given that they're in the hardest lockdown that we've seen anywhere in our state. I spoke to one of the residents of that tower, those tower blocks. Her name is Julia Allen. I live in one of the high-rise towers that have been placed into lockdown or hard lockdown. 
and the tower is a 20-storey building and I live on the 12th floor. Tell us what happened then on Saturday when the Premier Daniel Andrews said that the blocks, but also subsequently the city was going to go into lockdown. What happened in the block? There was a lot of panic and the way I came across this news was by coincidence really. I was scrolling through Facebook and I saw someone post something about um, the Premier explaining some important information. So I watched it and it said that we were going to be locked down immediately and I actually had a little bit of a hard time believing that. That was so extreme. I did not think that was going to be happening without any notice at all. So I went downstairs just to see what was going on and there were swarms of police cars heading to the building. Some police officers were already at the doors and so the entrance and exits and blocking off the staircase, so not letting anyone enter or leave. The only people they were letting enter back into the building were people who live here and they were not going to be able to be let back out until this is all over. So that was really, really shocking. And among the things that uh, Daniel Andrews said was that you would be provided with all the things that you needed. Has that happened? Right. Hiccups can be expected in this kind of situation because of how quickly the decision was made and how quickly things moved um, to lock the building down. However, it's definitely not been consistent with the reality on the ground. I mean, emergency response initially was all led by community and charity organisations. So we had a lot of people from the community rallying to get donations in of of foods and nappies and formula, you know, just things that you'd need. And then, then we faced the problem with having them delivered to us because the police were not letting them in, were not allowing the donations to come through. It's been a very difficult few days And finally, today, actually, it's the third day, today we received a a knock on the door with some grocery items like milk, bread, yogurt, cheese, you know, just staples that you normally would have at home. And and we are very grateful that that has been done. But, you know, it's taken three days to get there. Let let me just clarify on the issue of the accommodation. You're you're living in what's known as public housing in, in Australia. I wonder if you can just outline for us the the kinds of people who are in this public housing. I mean, how would you describe them? A lot of the people that live in these towers are vulnerable people. They need extra support. Uh, a lot of them are refugees, disabled or very elderly, and some people with mental health issues, others with drug and alcohol problems. So it's a whole mixed bag, really. But yes, it is one of the most marginalised communities, I guess, here in Melbourne. And in that context, would you say that you are getting the kind of support now that the whole city is under lockdown? Absolutely not, unfortunately, I'm going to have to say. Again, because things have been really mismanaged. I just want to make this point as well. You know, the police that have been sent here, I totally understand. They're only doing their job. They're following, you know, orders. But they don't have the skills to be dealing with this situation. We need to remember a lot of the people here in these buildings come from, you know, war-torn countries, places that they've tried to escape the police and police brutality, police violence. So seeing the police at the door all over the place, 
armed forces, it's just not the way to go. I mean, look, across the road, when I look out my building, I can see the high-rises, which are not public housing. They're multi-million dollar estate high-rises. And what makes across the road any different to over here? They haven't been locked down. I mean, there aren't policemen standing at their doors, guarding their doors, telling them to get the hell back inside. And I think it's absolutely classist. It's thinly veiled as public health. But if that was the case, everyone would be treated the same. That there's no reason that across the road are allowed to leave their homes for four reasons and they're given that, you know, that freedom to make the decision themselves, whether it's essential shopping or whether it's healthcare, you know, we don't get that option. Do you understand the authorities' dilemma if the infections or the numbers of infections that have uh, come up are occurring in these tower blocks, then those are the blocks that they have to shut down. But that's not the case, though. I have not heard of anyone in my tower being COVID positive. I am yet to hear of anyone from my tower being removed due to having the virus. I mean, it wasn't unforeseen that there would be a number of positive cases in the towers of vulnerable people. So support was needed before the situation got to this point. What was done before it reached the crisis point? Were the buildings sanitised? Was information provided to the buildings on hand hygiene? Were there signs to assist people um, with additional support services provided? Were these things provided? The answer is no. So it's all well and good to, you know, provide or try to provide additional support now, but it should have been done the whole way through. Julia Allen. We did ask to speak to a Melbourne City official and uh, they didn't want to speak to us. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Razia Iqbal. This is NewsHour. Coming up, we'll hear from members of the Cathedral Choir in the English city of Wells. They're devastated they can no longer sing as they used to because of coronavirus restrictions. I think it provides an emotional release and to know that that's dangerous and that could actually hurt people. It's just heartbreaking. Do stay with us for that report. The BBC News headlines this hour. The Australian city of Melbourne is being locked down for the next six weeks after a resurgence in coronavirus cases. And the European Commission says the damage caused by the pandemic to the European Union's economy is even worse than it had feared. This is Razia Iqbal with News Hour Live from the BBC in London. Let's stay with the resurgence of coronavirus cases and hear about the situation in Spain, a country you'll recall which was devastated by the virus in the early months of this year. More than a quarter of a million confirmed cases and 28,385 deaths. There are pockets of Spain which are currently in lockdown in two regions, in the northeast and the northwest. I spoke to the country's health minister a short time ago, the man who presided over policy when there was a state of emergency. Now the outbreaks are being dealt with by regional authorities. I asked Salvador Ila Roca first if this was the right approach. Yes, at this stage, we think this is the right thing. We have always said that uh, uh, the Spanish uh, health system, which is a decentralised one, is working uh, right in, in 
in this sense, and we have seen the task of the regional governments as a plus, not as a minus, and, and in this stage, we think it's the appropriate way to deal with the situation. So they have under practice and uh, they have deployed early detection systems. We are constantly um, in contact with the regional governments. Obviously, we have uh, many meetings during the week to analyze the situation, but they are responsible, according to the Spanish war and Spanish situation, to have the detection systems on the point and to react to them with appropriate measures. There are some suggestions, though, that appropriate protocols are not being followed. Um, I, could say, I wouldn't say so. The protocols and uh, the established measures are followed, but there are some situations where, uh, where some breaks appear being uh, because of uh, some uh, incivic uh, behavior of some particular citizens, uh, being because of some imported cases from other countries, being for the, some uh, uh, situations uh, in some uh, workplaces. Uh, ev- everywhere in the world, we are seeing that there are outbreaks. The important thing just to eerily detect these outbreaks and to appropriately react to them. You, you say that it can be attributed to some individual citizens who perhaps are not working alongside everybody else and perhaps make, taking risks that uh, is making it difficult to flatten the curve. But you also mentioned the possibility of imported cases. I mean, is that not precisely the thing that the central government, that Madrid should be saying, if some of these cases are as a result of people coming into the country, then perhaps you should close the borders again? Well, we have reached an agreement with our uh, other European countries and we, we have put into practice in the airports and in the ports some uh, temperature controls, uh, information controls to assure that all the people that come to Spain are uh, people that meet their standards. And also we have, as you probably know, restricted the third countries that can uh, travel to Spain. We think these are the appropriate measures to to guarantee the health of the people who visit Spain and also the, the health of the people who live in Spain. On a scale of 1 to 10, how confident are you that this will not lead to a second wave in Spain? Uh, I don't like to put numbers to this, but I just... Uh... What I can just tell you is that we are doing uh, the appropriate things to keep under control the virus in Spain. So five, uh, until... six? No, I, I don't like to put numbers on this because we, we should be very cautious. And just saying that what we are doing now is early detecting all the outbreaks and responding strongly to them with the measures that we have accorded with the regional government. Okay, let me put it uh, another way. More than 60 uh, small outbreaks, two regions that have gone back into lockdown. Do you sleep better now than you did at the height of the pandemic in Spain? Uh, Yes, because, I mean, at the height of the pandemic, the virus was not under control. Now the virus, up to now, the virus is under control. Now we, we, we are detecting in a very early stage and we are able to react uh, with strong measures. So I think that's the appropriate thing to do up to now. That was uh, Salvador Ila Roca, Spain's health minister. Now, whether it's trains, buses, taxis or the subway, the coronavirus is for many raising new concerns about the safety of the daily commute. In the United States, the lockdown has decimated passenger numbers across the country. In New York, until recently the global epicentre of COVID-19, that means subways and buses are running a full service with a fraction of the revenue. Nader Torfik travelled around the city where people are being urged to wear a mask and socially distance to find out how mass transit can survive with difficult safety and financial concerns. 
This is a Bronx-bound one train. Mass transit is often called the lifeblood of New York. Before the coronavirus pandemic, millions depended on it each day. Now, as the city reopens, the road to recovery could largely depend on people's comfort with riding public transit. You can see Hudson Yards and a nice walk around here. Lily, like the majority of New Yorkers, is not rushing back into the office. When she does return, though, she says she won't be riding the subway there. I'm so happy to rediscover New York again because I'm able to walk to different neighborhoods I didn't see before. Certain streets are closed off. And then it made me a little bit more aware of what's going on with the environment. So I think now that I'm happy to walk around, to use bikes, to use these electric scooters, it made me more cognizant. And so I, I don't see the need as much to be using public transportation. Since the outbreak hit, essential workers have relied on mass transit. Still, ridership has plummeted as others stay home or use other modes of transportation, including private cars. The MTA, the agency responsible for New York subways and buses, is now facing its worst financial crisis in its history. How are we doing, guys? To mark the return of regular service, Governor Andrew Cuomo rode the seven line into Grand Central to insist that the subway is the cleanest it's ever been. So I've come to the subway to have a look for myself, and on the platforms there are social distancing stickers, visibly more cleaning crews, and almost everyone is wearing a mask. But it's far emptier than usual, and it's clear it's going to take a while before things get back to pre-corona levels. In fact, Every month, the MTA says it's losing $500 million. Yeah, I haven't felt uncomfortable yet. There's been other places I felt more uncomfortable than I do on the train. I love it. There's not a lot of people there, you know, and everything, and you can see and enjoy the ride without the problem, and they are faster. The safest thing to do, unfortunately, in the current environment is to stay home. Dr. Ian Whitman is chief of emergency medicine at NYU Langone Hospital and has been on the front lines of the fight against COVID. He says the safety of public transit during a pandemic has not been well studied. I don't think that we can say that there is an absolute increased risk. I will say that if you are in a crowded train and people are not masking, that is absolutely an increased risk. If you're able to distance, if you're able to wear your mask and those around you are doing the same, and New York City has stepped up efforts to to pass out masks, to pass out hand sanitizer to people as they enter the subway system. It's not a perfect system, but we're doing what we can as a city, as a country, to mitigate against these risks. Well, these are both your boarding passes. Meanwhile, transit authorities and agencies are trying to mitigate the financial damage. At LaGuardia, a major milestone, the completion of the new Terminal B, part of a sweeping transformation of the airport. The once rundown structure now boasts large windows, 80 foot ceilings, and impressive art installations. Can you boarding pass, please? Yeah. The Port Authority, which runs New York and New Jersey's airports, bridges, and tunnels, is suffering financially just like the MTA. Executive Director Rick Cotton fears that unless the federal government steps in with $3 billion in aid, future infrastructure projects will suffer. Not only has infrastructure in general been neglected, really across the country and across the region, but we have the potential to contribute to a strong economic recovery. That's what we want to do. Investing in infrastructure is one way to soften the blow of the pandemic. Nevertheless, the way we travel in big cities may never be the same. So you're back.
That was our correspondent, Nada Torfik, reporting for us from New York. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Razia Iqbal, and this is NewsHour. Welcome back to NewsHour. In just a moment, we'll look at Hong Kong, where the new and controversial security law came into effect today. But now some more coronavirus-related science. At the beginning of the pandemic, it looked like COVID-19 was a respiratory illness. Now we know it can also affect other organs, and it appears it can also short-circuit the immune system, working in a way that's similar to HIV. I've been speaking to Dr Adrian Hayday, a group leader at the Francis Crick Institute and Professor of Immunobiology at King's College. London. The surprising thing is that there are huge losses of T cells, which are lymphocytes, which are extremely important in protecting us against pathogens that we see in COVID-19 that are reminiscent to some extent what you see in HIV. And what's extraordinary is that HIV achieves this by directly infecting the T cells and dysregulating or reorganizing the T-cell compartment. Whereas there's no evidence that the COVID virus does this, it seems to do it by some as yet unknown mechanism indirectly. And you see in post-mortem analyses uh, necrotic areas where you would normally have T-cells very similar to what you used to see on AIDS patient post-mortems. Given what you've said, what are the implications then for not just treatments, but long-term recuperation, let alone vaccines? The good news is that the immune system is usually incredibly good at bouncing back. So while there will, of course, be all sorts of appropriate downstream studies of individuals who've been through COVID-19 disease and have required hospitalisation, I don't think there's any reason at this point to be concerned of long-term sequelae or consequences. In the shorter term, we definitely are in a situation where a whole set of individuals, that is, these individuals who seem to require hospitalisation, do seem to have been disabled for one part of their protective response. So our response in turn to that comes in in multiple ways. One is to boost T-cell responses. And the other is, of course, as we go forward and think about improving vaccine designs, making sure that we consider that these individuals may be needing uh, more support for their T-cell compartment. Do you know enough now to say that some of the treatments will involve the kind of antiretroviral drugs that are successful to treat HIV patients? Antiretrovirals used in HIV will have their equivalents for coronavirus. The basic research that has gone into detailed understanding of what people's immune systems look like in this disease is moving us from a place where we had general ideas to now where we've got some very specific ideas. And that always helps you in the design of improved treatment. So I'm very optimistic that this disease will get more manageable. And that's critical to reducing the global threat that the virus poses. Optimistic news from Dr. Adrian Hayday, group leader at the Francis Crick Institute and a professor at King's College, London. You're listening to News Hour from the BBC. I'm Razia Iqbal.
To Hong Kong now, and the territory's chief executive, Carrie Lam, has claimed there's increasing support for China's new powers, the controversial security law, despite continuing local and international criticism. Mrs Lam said stability in Hong Kong's financial markets showed the situation was not all doom and gloom. She told a media briefing that her administration would vigorously implement the new legislation and warn people not to cross the red line. But many have pointed out that China China's law in Hong Kong is so broad and vague that it's difficult to know what activities are now illegal. Let's speak to Keith Richberg, who is Director of Journalism and Media Studies uh, Centre at the University of Hong Kong and a former bureau chief for The Washington Post in Hong Kong and in Beijing. Welcome to the programme. Uh, what do you make, first of all, of, of um, Carrie Lam's uh, spin, if you like, uh, that it's not all doom and gloom? Well, of, of course, that's spin. That's the you know that's what she has to say. I mean, that's her job as chief executive to try to promote this thing. I mean, you know, obviously they've been going on a on a a real public relations campaign over the last few weeks or so that this law has been being debated to try to say that everybody everyone supports it. It's going to bring back stability to Hong Kong. They've pressured uh, the heads of corporations like HSBC, the head of banks, etc., to sign on and to say that this is the great thing. They've pressured university presidents presidents to sign on to this. But, uh, you know, again, it's all kind of this part of this concerted uh, you know, PR campaign to convince people this is not the end of the world. But again, again, you know, but most average people you talk to are just very kind of depressed. Uh, there's gloom. There's, you know, there, there's uh, anxiety. There people are talking about immigrating. So there's the official line and then the, the orchestrated public opinion campaign. But on mm. the other hand, there's what ordinary people really think. And, and what about uh, not so ordinary people? You've been sitting on a panel at the um, Hong Kong Foreign Correspondents Club today discussing how journalists and reporters will now have to watch what they do more carefully. What sorts of things came out in that discussion? Well, you know, among the things that came out in that, and it was a really interesting discussion there, I mean, including the questions from the audience. But one, the interesting thing is, though, this is the new reality. I mean, we're, you know, that you know, uh, June 29th is not the same as as we are now, July 1st or or you know, July 6th. Uh, things have changed. This is our new reality. So there's no point in kind of debating whether or not we need this law or debating whether or not the the efficacy of it. It's it is the law now. And and among the other points that came out of that was that we simply have to start figuring out how to navigate this new law. How do journalists still operate? And one of the points that came out was that, uh, you know, journalists operate in China. They operate in authoritarian regimes all over this part of the world in Asia, where you have les majesty laws in Thailand, where you can't insult or talk about the monarchy. You have blasphemy laws in Indonesia. You have internal security acts in Malaysia and Singapore. And journalists still do operate. And so the the trick is for journalists not to kind of you know crawl up in a ball and cower, but to figure out okay what can, wait now where are the red lines? What can we say? What can we get away with? What what topics should we avoid? And how do we get on by doing our jobs and and not run afoul of this law? And just briefly, do you think it might result in in some self censorship because of the fear of of possibly even being deported to the mainland? Oh, it's already resulting in self-censorship, I would say, unfortunately. I mean, people are already scrubbing their social media accounts, going back and scrubbing what they may have said on Facebook or Twitter six months or or two weeks ago. Uh, So it it is already serving that purpose. Um, People are already being a bit more cautious. That's the problem now. I mean, the law is is efficient in the fact that that they have not had to do anything yet. (laughs) 
Uh, Keith Richberg, uh, Director of Journalism and Media Studies at the uh, University of Hong Kong. Uh, thanks for joining us here on NewsHour. Let's stay in Hong Kong and the news that TikTok, the social media viral video app that has come into its own as the world dealt with the pandemic, is pulling out of Hong Kong. The company, which is owned by a China-based Byte Dance, has decided to pull its app from Hong Kong app stores after the new security law sparked fears over access to user data. Let's speak to Yuan Yang, who is the China tech correspondent for the Financial Times newspaper. Uh, welcome to the programme. Uh, let's start just by... Um, um, uh, getting you to explain what the company has said about this decision to halt services to Hong Kong users. Sure. So for TikTok, or for ByteDance, the Chinese company that owns it, this is very much a business decision. TikTok is the international version of the short video app. And there is a domestic Chinese version called Douyin, which is exactly the same app, but with a different content. And only Chinese users can upload to it. Only Chinese users can uh, can uh, download and use the app. And so by pulling out of Hong Kong, what ByteDance is saying is that Hong Kong actually doesn't count as part of the international market as far as it's concerned. And they haven't mentioned uh, specifically uh, the, the concerns about access to data, personal data, which they think may possibly be used by the authorities. No, I think in this, on this case, ByteDance, the parent company, has to be very politically cautious. It doesn't, need, it doesn't want to be seen as opposing the national security law or even having any misgivings about the way that the law could potentially allow police to request private user data. And it has to stay very neutral. So I think that's why this decision is being made um, quite bluntly and also without much explanation. Uh, but TikTok isn't alone. Uh, Zoom, the video conferencing platform, also announced in a statement uh, that it's going to pause processing of data requests from the government. LinkedIn, owned by Microsoft, of course, made a similar announcement. What do you make of all of this collectively? Yes, yeah, so for Microsoft, for Zoom, also for Twitter, Google and, and so on, they are facing a uh, kind of a huge dilemma here because on the one hand, there is China markets, which has already been pretty difficult for those companies to get into. Hong Kong was a great uh, place for them to host their Asia operations, but it looks increasingly like if they stay there, they'll risk the uh, other side, which is potential uh, retaliation or accusations from the U.S. government in particular and the international investors and users that they are complying with an authoritarian regime in Hong Kong and that they're putting their users at risk. So for them, they're now about to make a business decision as to whether the cost of staying in Hong Kong, maintaining their offices and their data centers and their employees there um, is really worth it. I, just in that context, the uh, U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, has said that the Trump administration was considering banning uh, media apps such as TikTok. Uh, presumably this could really escalate tensions between the U.S. and the China even further. Definitely. And I think at the start of this year, you know, if you'd asked uh, how far the U.S.-China tensions could go, <laughs> we didn't see that there could be a ceiling as high as, as, high as the one that we're, we've reached right now. Okay. I think if there is a ban on apps, then, of course, China would take every opportunity to accuse the, UK of, uh, the USA sorry, of, of hypocrisy. Yuan Yang, China tech correspondent for the Financial Times newspaper. Thanks for joining us.
The moment we are living in, in the context of the killing of George Floyd and the protest movement Black Lives Matter, has prompted a discussion about the past and history. And who drives the narratives of the past? Who dictates what we should and shouldn't learn or remember? Questions institutions everywhere are grappling with as the debate over statues and public monuments continues. In the English city of Bristol in the southwest, a new curriculum for school students will be rolled out from September, giving children, its writers believe, a more rounded history of the place they live in. It will tackle in detail the city's close links to the Atlantic slave trade, links many believe textbooks have downplayed. Clive Myrie reports. St Nicholas Covered Market in the heart of Bristol sits in a Georgian arcade that encapsulates the city's merchant past and present. These days the stalls sell souvenir mugs and T-shirts but the rich plasterwork on the walls details other goods Bristol merchants once traded, including African slaves. And it's just up the road in the city centre where the statue of Edward Colston, a prolific slave trader and local philanthropist, was toppled last month by a crowd anxious to topple his version of history. Lucy Wheeler runs a clothing stall in the market. I can't believe it. I was so happy. That statue was there to celebrate somebody who had links to the slave trade. It just always made me feel uncomfortable every time I saw it. I think it would be really nice if there could be a permanent museum to Bristol's part in the slave trade and put him in there in proper context. Signs of the city's colonial past don't simply reside in St Nicholas Market. A bus ride could take you to Jamaica Street. The glorious Georgian terraces that lazily stretch around the Clifton area They date from the days when slavery swelled merchant coffers. And it's the descendants of the merchants and past city elders who used to own the history of the city. They decided the atrocity of slavery was best forgotten. But a new generation doesn't want to forget. Asher Craig is the deputy mayor of Bristol and the descendants of Jamaican immigrants. Here in Bristol, it has been really important to us that we needed to look at legacy. If we look at legacy, it can't be through one particular kaleidoscope. The kaleidoscope has many colours, history has many stories. A new citywide school curriculum means when it comes to slavery, primary and secondary pupils will now get a comprehensive history. Pupils are also to get a better understanding of the post-war black British experience too. The sacrifices made by the Windrush generation. In 1954, about 10,000 West Indians came to Britain. In 1955, it is believed another 15,000 will make the long journey. The newsreels show well-dressed black men and women descending the gangplanks of ships newly arrived in the UK from the Caribbean. Whatever our feelings, we cannot deny them entry. For all our British citizens, and as such, are entitled to the identical rights of any member of the Empire. For some, that turned out to be a lie. Mike Lord was sixth when he disembarked from a Barbados ship in 1960. He arrived on his godmother's passport and years later had no other paperwork to prove he had the right to live here. I felt like a leper. You know, I just well had a tag on my back saying I'm not British because no one will accept it because the government made it not to employ you if you've got no paperwork to prove who you are. It's been hard, been really hard. That make you angry? Not angry, I just can't understand why all this is going on. 
Mike's story is a crucial thread in Bristol's story, and the pain of the Windrush generation won't be forgotten. Not far away from the docks here, the statue of Edward Colston has been fished from the River Avon, where the protesters had dumped it. Restorers are working to preserve the graffiti sprayed on it in Dayglow Red. At some point, he'll be placed back on his plinth, probably in a museum, with a plaque outlining not just his philanthropy, but also his slave trading. A reminder that ultimately history and memory belongs to us all, not just the victors. Clive Myrie reporting. Over the next few weeks, we will hear from other countries telling the story of the ongoing legacies of British colonial rule. Just time to remind you that if you ever fail to hear our programme live on air, you can always download our podcast. It's updated twice a day. BBC News Hour is what you need to put into search engines of your choice. And if you'd like to tell us what you think about what you hear on our programme, at BBC News Hour is the programme's Twitter handle. At Razia Iqbal is mine if you want to speak to me directly. You're listening to news hour. And a reminder of our top story this hour, the Australian city of Melbourne is about to go into lockdown for the next six weeks after a resurgence in coronavirus cases. Bridget Rollison, journalist for the ABC network in Melbourne, told this programme that the economic consequences are likely to be severe. There is a lot of big concern for businesses in these Melbourne areas. Things like gyms, beauty salons, cinemas have to close again. Restaurants, cafes, things like that, they're only going to be takeaway only. So there's going to be a lot of economic damage for businesses around Melbourne. A couple of other headlines from the BBC newsroom this hour. The European Commission says the damage caused by the pandemic to the European Union's economy is even worse than it had feared. And the American actor Johnny Depp has been giving evidence at the High Court in London in his libel suit against a British newspaper, which accused him of beating his wife. This is Razia Iqbal with NewsHour Live from the BBC in London. Iraq now and a leading Iraqi expert on jihadis and other armed groups, Hisham al-Hashimi, was fatally shot late on Monday outside his house in the capital, Baghdad. Police said he was killed by two gunmen on a motorbike. No one has claimed responsibility. But it was known that Mr Hashimi was a frequent target of the propaganda of Iranian-backed militia groups. I'm joined on the line now by uh, Lahib Higel, who she's a senior analyst on Iraq for the international crisis group Think Tank, and uh, she knew Mr Hashimi. Um, Tell us a little bit about him and his expertise. Hello. Well, yeah, as you mentioned, he is uh, one of the most prominent um, experts really on uh, jihadism in the world, um, on ISIS and Al-Qaeda in in particular, but also on uh, various paramilitary groups in the region and in Iraq. And and you outlined his expertise, but how important was his work in the context of uh, all that we know about extremist groups? His information was really invaluable. I mean, especially during the campaign against uh, ISIS um, in in 2014 and up until 2017, he was an advisor to uh, one of the former prime ministers, Haider al-Abadi. He was also an informal advisor to um, the current prime minister. Um, He had uh, a vast network. Uh, He spoke to everyone. uh, both Sunni extremists and um, and some of the hardline Shia groups. Um, so he really had access to to information that that not everyone did. 
Do, do you think uh, that he knew he was uh, a, a possible target for this kind of killing? Was he nervous about uh, being killed? Absolutely. He has been threatened uh, for quite some time now, but uh, he saw it as his duty to carry on um, of making sense of uh, the developments of these groups and, and what it meant for the uh, safety of Iraq. And given that he spoke to everyone, as you've just said, and no one has claimed responsibility, you don't have a sense of who might have uh, desired uh, his his death more than any other group, do you? Well, I mean, uh, he's been threatened by, by various sides. Of course, uh, the recent developments in Iraq have, have very much been involving um, hardline uh, hardline pro-Iranian groups um, that have grown more aggressive after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani and Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis in Iraq earlier this year. Um, it is known that uh, Dr. Hashim um, received threats from some of these groups, um, but it is difficult to tell at this point. I mean, there has also been quite a lot of fragmentation since they lost uh, their main leader, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, who was uh, not only the head of the Hashd um, al-Sha'bi or the Popular Mobilization Forces in Iraq, but also specifically of Qatar Hezbollah. I just want to briefly ask you about the uh, decision to set up a special body to focus on investigating assassinations. Are you confident that this will be a body that uh, can work independently? Well, that that is very difficult in Iraq. I mean, um, so far what we've seen of other killings that have targeted um, um, civil society activists, for example, uh, especially during uh, last year's protest, there has been not, not much result for this. Of course, uh, uh, Al-Hashimi was uh, close to the the president and, and the prime minister, and um, I'm sure that they will make that effort, but uh, I doubt that we will see any results soon. Lahib Higel, a senior analyst on Iraq for the International Crisis Group. Thanks for joining us. Let's end by returning to an aspect of living with the coronavirus now. With no communal singing at church services allowed here in the UK and restrictions in countries like Germany and the Netherlands, how are choirs managing to keep things going? And what's the scientific basis for choir singing being especially dangerous? David Silito has been taking a closer listen. He travelled to the English cathedral city of Wells. I just love the sound we make when we're together. Welcome to Bebbington's Creative Community Choir. They were allowing me to sit in on rehearsals, which are of course now taking place on Zoom. It isn't the same as being in the room together, obviously. What I miss is actually meeting up with people, being able to share things. When you're singing on your own, you do feel very isolated. Zoom is not really a good choral solution. So what's the route map to restore singing? It was this thought that took me to meet the choral community of Wells Cathedral. A few housemates have been singing in gardens, but other than that, there's been silence. It breaks my heart, to be honest. I'm Emily Risden and I sing in the Scola Cantorum, which is the ladies' choir at the cathedral. Do you miss the singing? Yeah. Absolutely. I think it 
provides an emotional release. And to know that that's dangerous and that could actually hurt people is just heartbreaking. I feel like there's been a lot of research put into working out how pubs and cafes and restaurants can be safe for people, and yet the arts just don't seem to be receiving the same treatment. Discussions about restoring singing have been taking place. Amongst the proposals being discussed, three-metre gaps between singers and restricting the number of singers to six. Should it be one metre, two metre, three metres, four metres? Should there be a limit on how many singers there are? It's all down to what's coming out of the mouths other than the music. And the science behind that is a bit sketchy. There are a number of research studies that have been done around the world, but it's very difficult to do research in this area because the quantities of aerosol and droplets that you're talking about are really very small and very difficult to measure and require a very specialist kit. Which is why Declan Costello, a consultant who specialises in treating the singing voice, has been encouraging some real science. Singing has been singled out as being a dangerous, quote-unquote, thing to do, really without any evidence or research to back that up. We have no idea if what we're doing at the moment, talking at a distance, is any different from singing at a distance. No, that's right. I mean, fundamentally, the physiological process of singing is the same as speaking. There are probably more consonants involved in speaking than in singing, and hence there might be more droplets in speaking and more aerosol in singing we just don't know and back in wells with our impromptu performance it was a reminder of just how silent these months have been the hope is the go-ahead will be given soon for the research to begin which it's hoped will open up a pathway to once again allow us to sing together david Silito reporting bye-bye NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.